you would turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 16. And in a moment, I'm going to read aloud verses 25 through 34. But as I promised last week, we're going to direct our attention specifically at the question and answer found in verses 30 and 31. That question being, what must I do to be saved? That's one of the most important questions in life, isn't it? What must I do to be saved? And that's the question we're going to consider today. There's a bishop in the Church of England during World War I by the name of John Taylor Smith. He was the honorary chaplain to Queen Victoria, and he was also the chaplain general of the British Army. And there is this scenario that he would present to anyone who was a candidate for chaplaincy, someone wanting to minister to and among the troops. And the scenario is very simple. He would say, there is a soldier who has been wounded on the battlefield. He's about to die. Only three minutes he has left to live. And he's afraid. He's afraid to die. He's afraid of facing his creator. He's afraid because he does not know Christ. And he looks at you and says, tell me, how may I be saved and die with the assurance that all is well? Bishop Smith would then look at the prospective chaplain and say, that's your scenario. That's the question. You've got three minutes. Go. And if the applicant couldn't do it, he didn't become a chaplain in the army. So that just sparks some thoughts. How would you answer that question? Could you do it in three minutes? Would that be enough time? It should be. Three minutes is plenty of time. Kent Hughes remarked in his commentary that a gospel that cannot save a dying man is no gospel. Bishop Smith knew that three minutes was plenty generous to provide an answer, provided you didn't ramble or beat around the bush or clutter up the message. But what would you say? What must a person do to be saved? Unfortunately, there are lots of answers out there that are in disagreement with the Word of God. I found one graphic online, this picture of a stick figure climbing the stairway to heaven. It was so cringe-worthy. And at the top of the graphic, it said, what must I do to be saved? And then underneath it said, God did his part. He sent his son. Jesus shed his blood. The spirit revealed the word. Now you do your part. And your part are these steps to heaven. Each step being here. Believe. 
repent, confess, be baptized, and then remain faithful. That's man's part. Many of you have heard something like that before. Maybe as a child in Sunday school, there was a, you can tell I'm a millennial, a flannel graph, flannel chart, where you maybe were memorized something similar. There are many people, there are many preachers who would use their three minutes by communicating those six steps. But that's not what Bishop Smith was looking for. He wasn't looking for the stairway to heaven because that is not the gospel. If you spend your three minutes giving a dying man those six things, you have not given him the gospel. The glorious message that Jesus Christ died so that sinners might be saved by grace. Instead, you've given them something cluttered and confused. Something that leads to anxiety rather than joy. Paul writes in Romans 1 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. How do we know we're giving someone the gospel? Here's an easy way to think about it. But the gospel means, I think we all know this, good news. News of something that has happened, past tense. Not something you must do that is present or future tense. It's a wonderful message of something that has already happened. So as you're asking yourself, am I giving this person the gospel? Consider, am I offering him Something that will happen or something that has happened? Am I telling them something they must do or something that has already been done? Is what I'm communicating past or future tense? The gospel, the power of God for salvation, is always news of something that has happened already in time and space not something you must do in the present or future. So back to that question, what must I do to be saved? I've got three minutes to communicate the words of life to a dying man. How would I answer? What must you do to be saved? Nothing. That's my answer. Nothing. The Lord Jesus has done Everything required for your salvation. So trust in him. Rest in him. Now I realize my answer might sound provocative to you. And the fact that that statement is provocative really is sad It's sad that our view of salvation has become so clouded and cluttered with our actions and our choice and our decision and our obedience and our faithfulness. All those things concerning 
ourselves have been put so forefront and they've been preached to you so many times that we get upset and offended when a servant of the gospel reminds you you don't do anything. Dear Christian, you didn't do anything. You have simply received what Christ has done for you. We're going to talk about that more in a moment. And I'm going to take the rest of my sermon to defend my answer. But first, let's pray. Almighty God, would you sanctify your people in the truth? Your word is truth. Would it penetrate the dark corners and crannies of our heart? that the light of Christ might be seen in us today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text, Acts 16, I'm going to begin in verses 25 and read to verse 34. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights. And rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and to all who were in his house. And he took them in the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The grass withers and the flowers fade But the word of our God stands forever. Paul and Silas are in prison. They're in the middle of a difficult event that the Lord ordained. That they might meet someone they would not have met otherwise. And share the gospel with them. We met the Philippian jailer last week back in verse 24. He is the one who escorts Paul and Silas to prison and puts their feet in stocks and locks the door. And we see him again this week. This great shaking wakes him. He'd been asleep. But now he wakes up he sees all the doors are open and all hope leaves him. He's filled with hopeless terror. He knows the punishment he would face for allowing prisoners to escape under his watch. 
No one would believe him that all the cell doors just miraculously opened. His superiors wouldn't believe that the prisoners by an act of God were freed from their stocks and chains. He would take all the blame. And if his bosses were feeling especially generous, they would quickly remove his head from his body. But if they were angry with him and wanted to set an example, they could make his final moments quite nasty and painful. And so with all these thoughts playing through his mind, he decides to end his own life. That's how hopeless he is. He draws his sword. He is about to fall on it. And what happens? Paul stops him. He stops him and says, do not harm yourself. We are all here. You aren't going to be in trouble. No one has escaped. Everyone is accounted for. And in verse 29, the jailer, hearing Paul's voice, grabs a torch, rushes in, sees them. And then Luke says that he's trembling with fear. He falls down before them and asks this most important of questions. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Apparently, he'd heard their words in singing earlier in the evening. I want you to remember that this is the same man who only hours before had brought Paul and Silas into this dungeon and put their feet in stocks and locked the door. And presumably, he did so with a completely unbothered conscience. But now he's asking about salvation. His eyes have been opened to his own personal need to be saved from something. Namely, the judgment of his creator. He's in the middle of one of those experiences where your life flashes before your eyes. Maybe you've experienced something similar. Your life is flashing before your eyes. You assume, hey, this life is about to be over and he is terrified to meet the Lord. Praise God for the terror of the holy that he gives. Because that terror of judgment is what causes the jailer to ask Paul and Silas the way of salvation. John Calvin here says, quote, We see what a good thing it is for people to be thrown down from their pride and learn to submit to God. He had become hardened in his superstition. And so he might easily have despised whatever Paul and Silas said, particularly after he had put them in their cell. But now his fear made him docile and gentle. Whenever the Lord strikes us down or makes us alarmed, we must realize that he does so in order to reduce us to our right place instead of being proud, end quote. God has ordained this man's circumstances in such a way that he might be cast down and his pride stripped away and he would be brought to a place where he has nothing to lose and nowhere else to turn. He's been reduced, as Calvin said, to his right place where he fully understands his condition. He is a wretched sinner 
who if judged by a holy, just, all-knowing God, would be sent straight to hell. And so he asks this most important of questions. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And how do they answer? Paul doesn't tell him to clean up his life. Paul doesn't tell him that he must forsake his sin before coming to Christ. Paul doesn't give a lecture on theology. He doesn't mention the sacraments, baptism in particular. He doesn't talk about joining a church. He doesn't list the Ten Commandments. He does not tell him to do anything. What does he say? Believe. Believe. That is all that is required. Well, the critic might say, John, isn't this command to believe a command to do something? You said we do nothing, but isn't this something? It's not us doing something. Here's why. Number one, the ability to believe is a gift given to sinners by God. This jailer did not have the natural inherent ability to bring himself to saving faith. Neither do you or I. Folks who are dead in their trespasses and sins can't just conjure up saving faith or will themselves to believe on their own. It is a gift that God gives to the sinner. Among the miraculous that happened in the prison that evening, you've got God unlocking doors, God unlocking chains, and God unlocking this man's heart. His belief is a miracle that God does. Second thing to consider is what does Paul mean by believe? He's obviously talking about believing in the Lord Jesus, but what does he mean? I'll illustrate it this way. You are all sitting in pews right now. It's one thing to know what a pew is, to be able to define it. It's another thing to believe that you could safely sit on one. And it's even another thing to know what the pew is, believe you can safely sit on one, and then sit down. You know, when James talks about the demons believing and shuddering. All the knowledge they have is of who Jesus is, like just simply being able to define a pew. They know He's the Son of God, but they don't go any further. They don't believe Christ to be the sure salvation. They are not resting in Him alone for salvation. But this fuller view of Believing in Christ, knowing who he is, that he is the savior of sinners, and then resting in him. That's the fuller view of believing that Paul is calling the Philippian jailer to. In verse 32, we're told that Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to the jailer and to all who were in his house. They told this man and his family who Jesus is. 
that he is the savior of sinners. He is the rock of ages, cleft for us. And that he, the jailer, is to rest in Christ and hide himself in him. But again, John, the critic might say, isn't this us doing something? Okay, it's a gift given to us, but aren't we still in believing? Aren't we still doing something? No, I'm holding the line here. Saving faith is not us doing anything because saving faith, as seen in the scriptures, is non-meritorious. It is not a virtuous accomplishment. We don't come before God holding our faith in our hand. That might be a bad example is what I've got coming. <laughs> we don't come before God holding our faith in our hand and saying, here it is, Lord, here is my faith, accept it and save me. No, faith is not a work. It is not something we bring before the Lord. It is an empty hand. Saving faith is coming before God with outstretched, empty hands and saying, I bring nothing, Lord. No work that would earn your favor. No merit that would earn your acceptance. No accomplishment that would purchase my forgiveness. I bring nothing. And I am depending solely upon the work of salvation accomplished by your Son. Too often we fall into the error of viewing faith as, you know, this precious jewel that we possess and we tend it and we polish it and we guard it and we think that we can bring it before God and because of this jewel of faith we're saved. Faith is coming before God and bringing nothing. This is why my example is bad. It's the empty vessel, although there is water in here. It is the outstretched hand. I mean, we sang about this at the very beginning of the worship service in the third verse of Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. I went to a conference a couple weeks ago. A pastor's conference. And uh, one of the ministers speaking was Kevin DeYoung, who's a PCA pastor in Matthews, North Carolina, right outside of Charlotte. Kevin DeYoung was speaking about this very thing. And he made this comment. He says, quote, God does not declare us righteous because we present faith. It's not that he declares righteous because we present faith and he says, oh, your faith is so valuable that it merits for you justification. Rather, we are declared righteous because through faith we become partakers in all of Christ's benefits. We are not justified by the quality of our faith, but by the object of our faith. 
End quote. And who would the object of our faith be? The Lord Jesus. Paul isn't calling the jailer to do something. He's calling him to accept and to receive and to rest upon the saving work of the Lord Jesus. That gospel message that he took all of your sins upon himself and died on the cross in your place, paying your guilt, removing the penalty of your sin forever. And not only that, not only did he take something from you, but he also gave you something. He has credited to the believer his perfect righteousness. So not only are you forgiven, but you are accepted. Covered in the righteousness of Christ, you may approach the throne of grace in boldness. Our church's confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, says that the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. This is the testimony of our confession. It's the testimony of Scripture. John 1, 12 and 13, we read, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The saving faith is receiving and resting on the Lord Jesus. Something important to think about before we finish. Again, I have, I have, a, I have the critic in mind. And the critic might say, well, John, I know my Bible. And I know that Jesus has asked this same question. And I know the answers he gave. In Luke 10, just prior to the parable of the Good Samaritan, a lawyer says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And to be brief, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Sounds like doing something to be saved. And then also, in Matthew 19, the parable, not the parable, the account of the rich young ruler. He approaches Jesus and says, Good teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So John, how does your answer of faith alone agree with the words of Jesus? What do these two have in common? the lawyer and the rich young ruler. Both wanted Jesus to tell them the steps to the stairway to heaven so that they might climb. They want to know, what do I do? They had this idea that they could accomplish what was required for eternal life. Luke tells us this. 
in, in Luke 10. The lawyer asks him the question, Jesus gives the answer, and then Luke says in verse 10, or in chapter 10, verse 29, he says, the lawyer was desiring to justify himself. That's important. We know what's going on in his head. He's desiring to justify himself. I can do what is required. I can do enough to be declared not guilty. It's the same with the rich young ruler. Jesus tells him to keep the commandments. And he says, I've done it. What more do I lack? And in both situations, Jesus responds by laying upon them impossible requirements. First, he says, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Good luck with that. And then he describes a scenario, the Good Samaritan. A a scenario that the lawyer would find offensive. He would never be able to consistently, faithfully model that degree of self-sacrificial love in the parable. And Jesus says, you want to earn eternal life? Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and be the good Samaritan every day. Do that and you'll live. Does that sound like good news? I think that sounds crushing. Who can do that? No one except Christ himself, which is the point. What about the rich young ruler? He's given a command that makes him go away sorrowful because he knows he can't do it. Jesus crushes him. Now, of course, there are secondary applications in both of these examples. Are we commanded to love God and neighbor? Yes. Should we repent of a sinful love of money? Yes. But those things are not Jesus' primary motivation. What's first in his mind is to clearly show these two men that they cannot do that which they are seeking to do. Now the hope is that in having this crushing burden laid upon them, they would be driven to the Savior. The hope is that both men would see that they could never do what was required and then by God's grace cry out for help. That's the goal. That instead of asking, what do I lack to be perfect? They come with open hands saying, I have no righteousness. I have no obedience. I have nothing to justify myself. You must save and you alone. As you read through the Gospels, take note of how Jesus talks differently to different people. To the proud, he gives the law and says, be perfect. And to the broken, to the needy, he says, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those 
who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They hunger and thirst because they feel their need of it. And he says, for they shall be satisfied. But to those who desire to justify themselves and to bring something in their hands, he gives them law. He will tell you to squeeze a camel through the eye of a needle. But to those who come with empty, outstretched hands, he gives the gospel. The Philippian jailer is an example. Falling to his knees at Paul and Silas's feet, he knows that if there is hope to be found, it is found outside of himself in the merit of another. And Paul, being the evangelist he was, he directed the jailer's eyes to the Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how does this narrative end? With joy. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This story ends with Rejoicing. I want you to know that if any part of your formula for salvation includes you doing something, you will not know this joy. Let's say God does his part and you do yours. He does 90 and you do 10. He does 95, you do 5. He does 99, you do 1. That 1% still leaves plenty of opportunities for you to mess something up. And you will never know rest and peace and joy and freedom. If you are trusting in anything that has to do with you, even if it is the tiniest of percentages, whether it's your obedience or your faithfulness or your feelings or the strength or quality of your faith, you will never know peace with God because you'll always be wondering if you've done enough. But there is joy. There is rest. There is peace. There is assurance but it is only found in looking to Christ alone and what he has done. That's my prayer for all of us. That we would be enabled by the working of the Holy Spirit to turn our eyes and focus away from ourselves toward Christ and place all our hope and confidence and trust in him and what he has done for sinners like us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may it be so. You know how fixated we are on trying to add our works and our actions and our faithfulness in as if they counted for anything when it comes to our salvation. Father, would we look to Christ? to Him alone, 
Would we run to you to escape the crushing weight of the law and run to you with open hands saying, Lord, I bring nothing. Give me Christ. I bring no righteousness of my own. Give me his. I bring no faithfulness. Give me his. I bring no obedience. Give me his. Hide me in the Savior that all might be well forever and ever. We ask this in his name. Amen.